Welcome to another episode of Bowel Sounds, the Pediatric GI Podcast, the official podcast of the North American Society of Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition, or NASPGAN. My name is Peter Liu. I'm one of the hosts of our podcast. I'm a pediatric GI from Nationwide Children's Hospital, and I'm joined by my favorite host, Dr. Tamara Hajat from Cincinnati Children's. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm still your favorite host. Well, I, now I think I'm just going to say that for every episode. But yes, yes, you are. Yes, of course. Yeah, it's good to know. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so this comes out on Monday, May 23rd, while mm-hmm. we are both going to be in San Diego at DDW. Obviously, we're recording this a bit early, but DDW in person. I know. I know. This is my first um, in-person conference that I go to since the pandemic. So I'm pretty excited. It's gonna be crazy. I feel like for many people, that's such a big part of like what makes being a pediatric gastroenterologist special, you know, like the community of people that we work with. So, all right. Anyways, do we have any announcements? Um, I guess for this episode, it is very special because it is our first episode with a uh, pediatric gastroenterologist from outside of NASPGAN. Yes, that's pretty exciting. Yeah, we keep on calling it... We keep on calling it an international guest, but in reality, obviously we've had several Canadians um, on our podcast, but you know what we mean? Like first guest from outside of NASPGAN and uh, we chose Dr. Mark Benninga. Perfect guest. He was so fun to talk to. So yeah, fun. He is hilarious. And you know him. You've known him for a while, right? Yeah. So I know him primarily because of, uh, you know, Dr. DiLorenzo. So he's like BFFs with Carlo. So- I think that's kind of, it kind of like filtered down to me as well. He also, he mentions his little lab of uh, PhD students, um, which is not a little lab. He has like a research powerhouse, you know, factory pumping out tons and tons of like high impact research, but his PhD students come and visit us in Columbus. So I know several of his PhD students very well. He mentions Desiree Balaman, who is going to be at DDW as well who is the kind of like the current PhD student that's uh, working with us. Anyways, the second announcement is about this month is Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. I'm a little biased, but you know, one of my favorite heritage months out there. And I think this yeah. month we're recognizing Dr. B. Lee. For those who don't know who he is, I mean, I think most people will. I mean, he's done so much of the medical education stuff for NASPGAN. Uh, obviously, he was a former president of NASPGAN, so... NASPGAN is going to recognize him this yeah. month. So yeah, check out social media because we'll have some stuff on him coming out if it hasn't come out already. All oh, right. Word. So what are we talking about today? Today, our topic is about constipation, but not just simple constipation, intractable constipation. Yes. So the patient that comes to you that you've done everything like a good bowel regimen uh, for, and they're still constipated. So this is kind of like a more deep dive into how to manage a patient with constipation, which is one of my favorite topics. Cause I really, yes. I really like managing patients with constipation. Yeah. I feel like yeah. do a few more episodes and we'll make you a modalist. <laughs> it's, uh, so I think that the other thing that we try to highlight, you know, it's like, what's the whole point of bringing someone from Europe onto our podcast Right. Obviously, it's trying to like contrast some of the styles that we have, and it's it's crazy because honestly, I do not realize how different we practice compared to you know Mark Benninghaw, this close collaborator. We're on so many papers together, 
I didn't realize it. Like he like, it's crazy. So, I mean, it's the audience will hear, we do things very differently than they do uh-huh. in Europe. Very interesting to hear how like there's a difference in practice. I, I guess both practices are successful and are great, but there's a big difference in the practice, which is yeah. very interesting and enlightening. I like that. So a lot of cool stuff to come. And Dr. Benning, I just says like a quick uh, intro. So first of all, as we mentioned, he has a Wikipedia page. That's pretty, that's a pretty big deal. I know. Uh, <laughs> I mean, probably the first one. Um, he is, though, a uh, professor at the uh, Academic uh, Medical Center, or AMC, in Amsterdam. He's a pediatric gastroenterologist. He is a mentor to so many uh, MD, PhDs that have uh, really become like leaders in the pediatric motility and constipation field. And uh, he's just such a great person you know someone who like loves collaboration loves meeting people developing friendships and he's been uh, you know someone that i uh, really really look up to so it was an honor to be able to have him on our podcast so much fun to talk to yeah we'll do a sequel on to the show (laughs) (laughs) we got it Dr. Benninga, thank you so much for joining us as our first international guest on the Bell Sounds podcast. It is truly an honor to have you uh, join us today. Hi, Peter. Uh, it's, it's not only an honor for you, but it's true honor for me as well <laughs> to, uh, to meet you b- both in person and to talk about um, bowels in general. Yes. Um, so I love it to be here. Thanks. Our favorite topic constipation absolutely Uh, i'm going to start with the first question in one sentence can you describe yourself to our audience Uh, if you see me uh, then you see a small little guy uh, with glasses and a and a big nose who has has a strong opinion uh, loves to talk about shit uh, but the main thing in life for me is sports Yes. Uh, awesome. I like by the that. way, that may be the so this that's the second time someone has sworn, uttered a curse word on our uh, you know, uh classy podcast. But that one, the first one we edited out, that one we'll have to keep in because we'll know, leave this one. Yeah. Okay. I mean I didn't know I I I, I was uh, offending somebody. Okay. <laughs> I, I already am sorry that I did it. No, 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 no. No, no. This is no. what we want. We like that. Yes. <laughs> This is going to be setting. This is a historical podcast for many okay. reasons. Okay. So, um, okay. There's many, many things that we want to ask you about related to constipation, but there are also so many things from like a personal level that we wanted to ask about. One thing that your our mutual good friend, Dr. Carlo DiLorenzo, just texted me. He said that you published 57 papers in 2021 alone. Is that true? It's like one a week. Uh, well, it was 21, yes, in 21. Yeah, we had we had that many papers. But, you know, the system in Holland is, is completely different than in, in your country. So uh, I have this little lab yep. with many, many PhDs. Uh, all these people want to become something in life yep, uh, yep. that can be a pediatrician, it can be a psychologist or a, a general practitioner or whatever. Uh, and then in some cases, it's very difficult, for instance, to become a pediatrician in the Netherlands. And then they do something to to become better in yeah. the, for their CV. So that's why they start a PhD. Uh, and so uh, I'm good in collecting money. I'm good in 
in, in writing papers and, and guiding these people. It's, we'll probably talk a little bit about hockey in the past because that's a yeah. team sport. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think uh, is science uh, as well. Um, so, so over the years, many people work together. I collaborate with uh, these people work hard. As you know, some, one right. of the PhDs worked in Columbus, Ohio as well. And then indeed we publish many papers. Yeah. I mean, wow. it's amazing. It is You're a legend. being their mentor and being able to guide all of these people. That's yeah. amazing. Right. Wow. Right. Yeah. Well, it's, it's really nice. Uh, the good, the good thing about it is I become older every four years. Uh, but these people I guide uh, or mentor, they stay the same age because after four, <laughs> way, four years they leave and then the next, ah. uh, the, the next very nice boy, boy or girl will come to our, our little lab. Yeah. It starts their PhD and sometimes it's difficult because then the writing is not so good and it takes more time. But some of these people like Desiree, you, you, yeah. you yeah. are aware of is exceptionally good in all these things. And then it's really a pleasure to, to guide them. But I, I that's what I lo- like best of doing medicine. So yeah. seeing patients, but at the same time do the combined clinical work with, uh, with the science. Yeah. That's amazing. Wow. That's amazing. And then you alluded to hockey so field hockey so not only are you our first international guest you're also the first olympian on our show so you also may be the first with the wikipedia page but on your wikipedia page it says that you won a bronze medal in field hockey at the 1988 seoul summer olympics i remember dr DiLorenzo in the talk showed a picture of you at maybe the medal ceremony but you had a cast you're in a wheelchair it's like yeah, what happened yeah. there tell us about this <laughs> so I, I have to admit that those Olympics or being an international athlete mm-hmm. is probably the best I ever did uh, because you're young, you don't have problems, you don't have to think serious, but only think about hitting a ball in a net, <laughs> um, travel with your friends all over the world. Wow. Uh, and then if you're lucky, then you win some medals. And, uh, you know, Holland is very good at field hockey. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not a very big sport but the people in australia germany spain uh, pakistan and india play this play the game but it's not a, a worldwide common uh, game so it's a little bit more easy to become an international player although in, in holland it's 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 not so easy right. um so when i played the olympics i i got terribly injured oh. uh, at the fourth game of the olympics so i teared all my uh, my ligaments in my right knee oh wow, uh, wow. But you know, all of them? Yeah, it was all of them. All of Yikes. them. What? So it, it, it took me a year to, to recover. But oh, then no. after that, I came back to the national team uh, and became world champion in, in Pakistan, where we played for wow. 70,000 people. So that oh, was that. My gosh. What another highlight of, uh, of, of the time I played hockey. But, uh, but again, if you, if you as a, well, I, I don't consider myself as a true athlete, because if you, co- if you compare it to, uh, Johnson or all these, these really athletes who run the, the marathon or the 100 meters, my body doesn't look the same as, the, <laughs> as theirs. Uh, but then to see these people and compete in, at the same time in such an event is, is incredible, incredible. Oh, that's a great thought. comeback story. That's yeah, amazing. But, but I mean, being in the Olympics, I consider that as a true yeah. athlete. Are you kidding? Of course you're an athlete. You're the world champion. <laughs> You know, not Olympic only medalist. being in the Olympics, but winning. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's good. It's good. Yeah. And then, you know, so I was trying to figure out, it's so like, 
where was this in relationship to your medical career and training? Were you already, you already finished medical school and you were uh, traveling, playing hockey? Uh, yeah, well, I, I almost finished it. I was doing my residencies at, wow. at that time. And then, uh, you know, sometimes we had to go away for four weeks or six weeks. So mm -hmm. I had to ask permission to go there. And sometimes people make, made life really difficult because they said, well, uh, medicine is more important than, uh, than sports. And I tried to persuade them although yeah to persuade is a big word but i try to tell them well how often do you have at your little desk somebody <laughs> who, who 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 does medicine and at the same guy goes to the olympics so please exactly yeah but you know at, at that time it was rather difficult sometimes to persuade these people uh, is wow. it true? did you go That's back amazing. as a team physician what do you mean? Did you go to the Olympics as a team physician later yes, on? Yes, yes, indeed. Yeah. So in, in, I also went to uh, the Olympics of 2004 in, <sighs> uh, in Athens. There was some fight in the former team. Uh, and then oh. they thought, okay, we asked two nice people who are experienced in, at the Olympics, but at the same time uh, are, are, is a doctor and, and, uh, and could be act as a manager. So I was with a, with a friend I played with all this time. We uh, became in the team. And then, indeed, I was a doctor of the most healthy people in the world. <laughs> it, was a very, it was a very easy task for me. <laughs> Although I have to, I have to admit um, that um, uh, the, the, the people were a little scared that a pediatrician <laughs> was taking care of adults. Uh, and I, yeah. I told them all the hockey players are acting as children. So it's, it's, it's not very, very difficult. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but you yeah. know, I had, so I, had, I had nothing to do over there. Uh, so I wrote a book on constipation during the Olympics. It was what? in Dutch. Oh my I, I gosh. <laughs> I had nothing oh. to do. Oh. It was funny. It was funny. Oh my. I mean, layers and layers. I <laughs> know. Like, so, we could go, we could talk about this forever. <laughs> yeah. um, but I guess we have to go uh, into our topic right now. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> Your interest is in constipation, and actually, from what I read, is that your PhD thesis in the early '90s uh, was in pedi pediatric constipation and fecal incontinence. How did you decide to devote your career to helping children that can't poop? Okay, that's a, that's a very nice question because <laughs> I think it's a coincidence, to be honest. <laughs> you know, as I told you, so I see many of these young people who want to be who want to become a pediatrician, and then. You know, it's very difficult to get in all these uh, residencies. So uh, that's why I went to a pediatric gastroenterologist who was a former hockey player. And he wow. is a pediatric gastroenterologist. Uh, and I told him, well, I, I like to, uh, uh, I, I want to become a pediatrician. I don't, I, I actually don't know how to do this because I played hockey mm -hmm. and combined it a little bit with medicine. But I, to be honest, I, I was more an athlete than a, than a very good student. So, uh, can I work for you to be a PhD? And then he said, well, I don't know. And, the, but I went to the, to the DDW. So it was 1989. Uh, and he heard Vera Luningborg. She was a, a pediatric gastroenterologist from Iowa and Arnold Wald, a gastroenterologist, uh, from Pittsburgh talking about biofeedback in children with constipation. And he told me, well, I'm interested in this topic. Would you like to do this? And at that time, uh, we saw uh, in the AMC like one constipated child every week or so. I, I don't know. That was the that was the number at that time. And then I said, okay, I want to do this. 
Uh, and I write to all the pediatricians and general practitioners that they can send in their children with uh, bowel problems. And then it became a real mess because after that uh, letter, I think I saw like 20 to 50 children per week with constipation. <laughs> oh, wow. And then I started and then I, I thought by myself, okay, I tried to write a grant. And if we're lucky to have the grant, I start doing a study in biofeedback. And that's how it started. So it's a co coincidence that I started to take care for children uh, with uh, defecation problems. But this is how it, how it started. Wow. It's amazing because we ask, you know, all of our guests similar questions. And it's usually not like, oh, you, they were born passionate about constipation. It was a mentor. It was some, you know, a little bit of coincidence and and then working into making it your passion. So that's yeah. that's awesome. Yeah, and it, was, and it was fun because when I started the studies, I, I thought, okay, if I ever publish one paper on this topic, I have to be sure that I do it the right way. So I wrote Vera Luningborg in Iowa a letter, <sighs> and I asked her, can I come to your place and see how you do it? I wrote a letter to um, Arnold Wald to go to his uh, place, uh, and I never forget that I, I entered the United States in, uh, in Iowa and there she was, Vera Luningborg. She was originally from Germany waiting for me in her Mercedes. <laughs> her husband had a Mercedes. Whoa. Her children had a Mercedes. Wow. She had a strong German accent. <laughs> and then, uh, she, she, she showed me the way. Uh, so it was really fun to, to, to look into her kitchen. Uh, and, and the same was true with uh, Arnold Wald. They were very nice to me. And um, so that's that's how it started. And I, I knew I was doing the right way. They never could, if they would review my papers, they would they couldn't say, well, the, the, the methods you used are not correct because I just copied it what they did. So it was sure. fun. Yeah. And the rest is history. Yes. So, you know, uh, the very first episode of this podcast, you know, came out in October 2019. It was with our mutual friend, Dr. DiLorenzo. It was on constipation. So back then, we focused on some of the basics of evaluation and treatment. But today, we wanted to come talk to you about kind of the, the child that con has constipation that doesn't respond to our usual treatment and education, toilet training, oral medications. And according to the uh, SBGAN and ASBGAN guidelines that you helped write, you know, we would call that a, you know, intractable constipation. So starting with kind of the evaluation of that child, how do you use anorectal and potentially colonic manometry to evaluate the child with intractable constipation? Okay, this is a, a very long question with a very difficult answer, but I will, I start to say that, you know, the very nice thing about science in my life is that I came across very, very nice people. Uh, and one of them is Carlo, who, who became a real, real true friend. And, and the good thing about that is, is that I find it difficult to um, we'll see in, in science that so many people are rival, uh, rivals. Mm. Uh, and, and then if you look at reviews, it's terrible how they do it. The, the tone of the reviews is not very nice. But I think in motility, uh, we have such nice people who really like each other works. We, we are proud of, of each other. Uh, and that's rare, I think, in, in science. And I, I think people should embrace this because not only Carlo is a very true friend, but Miguel Sops and, and Sam Nurko and, and you. Uh, so many people, it's really, really nice to, to work with. So that's the first thing I want to address. But then secondly, you know, there is, a, to my opinion, a difference between uh, the way we do medicine and 
the United States. I think I personally do more based on symptoms. Mm-hmm. Of course, all, all over the planet, we listen to our patients, but I really think about if, if anorectal manometry or colonic manometry will help the child or ha- will help the parents in deciding what way we should go. Uh, and uh, so, to be honest, anorectal manometry I hardly use. Hmm. Uh, I only do it when I think uh, Botox will be helpful. So that and that we should do prospective studies because there are no there are no prospective studies, uh, as you know. So we should really evaluate what we are doing and the the, the value of anorectal manometry and the value of, of Botox, which is uh, is a, is is not so easy to uh, to use and very expensive and painful. Uh, colonic manometry we used a lot in the past, but nowadays, uh, since COVID, uh, it's very difficult to get uh, an, an operation room. So, as you know, we uh, colonic manometry is not easy to perform. You need uh, general anesthesia, you need endoscopy in our our hands. I, I think it's it's very difficult to uh, to perform this. So, in the last years, we hardly use colonic manometry. What I use more and more is uh, colonic transit times using radiopac mm-hmm. markers which are which to my opinion are very helpful uh, in the last years we used barium enemas in more and more children uh, again i'm surprised but what i'm seeing uh, in the in the old days i never used it because of the radiation exposure but nowadays i i think it's more and more helpful and i'm again i'm so much surprised in all these very severe cases we we have in our outpatient clinic uh, the, the bowel is tremendously elongated and 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 the width is unbelievable so that's a a second thing we use and then we also use the difficography more and more again to uh, discriminate the the outlet obstruction from the uh the slow transit constipation so because of 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 not not enough space in the in the operation we hardly use uh, colonic manometry and anorectal manometry in rare cases yeah that's very interesting. I don't think I recognize it was that big of a difference. I mean, do you, so like for us, you know, one of the traditional primary indications for an anorectomanometry is to, you know, evaluate for uh, a rectal anal inhibitory reflex, see if there's concern for Hirschsprungs. Do you use it for that or do you use more biopsy in that scenario? Well, we did, a. I think one of, one of the very best studies we ever did was this prospective trial where we evaluate the, the, the three different uh, diagnostics, uh, mm-hmm. the, the barium enema, the, the biopsy, and the manometry. And then in all these children, the, the biopsy was by far the best uh, way to uh, to exclude or diagnose Hirschsprung's disease. So I'm in favor of using this, but since there are many papers, or many, there are few papers on the, the effect of uh, Botox, mm-hmm. uh, I use anorectal manometry more and more, just to understand why it helps or why it doesn't. Although I'm still not sure how it works because if I read some papers, it doesn't matter if you have a high re- uh, an- anal pressure or a low pressure or there is an absent uh, re- reflex or there is the, the presence of the reflex. It always works f- uh, if you read these papers uh, carefully. But again, we have to do probably international collaboration and then do these do this uh, prospective trial. Yeah. One more kind of follow-up. So... You know, I think we've been using anorectomanometry a little bit more and more to look for evidence of uh, pelvic floor dyssynergia or dyssynergic defecation. Um, do you feel like there are advantages of using defecography to look for that? Other, you know, is what, what do you think about that? Uh, the, the topic of my thesis was yeah. using manometry to uh, discriminate uh, pelvic floor dys- dyssynergia. Yeah. 
And at the end of the day, it did, didn't make any difference uh, because the effect was almost similar. So I think, yes, it, it's a problem if you can't uh, relax your, your sphincter complex. The, the, on the other hand, um, as many people uh, became successful, successfully treated after one year. So right. um, it makes, and I don't think the focography is better. But we, uh, we, we, we used it for a, a large study, which uh, is now submitted to um, a journal, which compared sacral nerve stimulation with uh, um, rectal irrigation in uh, children 14 years of age until the age of 80 years. So it was oh, a wow. combined pediatric adult study. Uh, and we used the focography as uh, exclusion. So mm -hmm. if the, the focography showed that there was outlet obstruction, there was a reason not to include these patients in the in this trial and for the first time it's a very very positive trial it's, mm. it's unbelievable so i think um in this in these patients it uh, the photography might be helpful yeah very interesting uh you did mention something about uh pelvic floor biofeedback therapy and um initially it was thought that it is not helpful for kids it's more helpful for adults but Recently, since 2017, you kind of published a paper in gastroenterology that showed that it's actually very helpful. Um, a couple of questions about pelvic floor biofeedback therapy. Do you need the anal rectal manometry to tell you that a patient needs a pelvic floor therapy? And uh, when do you consider it? Again, very difficult question, to be honest. So uh, in the first... 10 years of my scientific career, it, it sounds big, but it isn't. Um, <laughs> we did these large studies uh, using biofeedback and anorectal manometry in uh, treating children with um, pelvic floor obstruction or pelvic floor abnormalities. It was funny because I have to go back to the old days because uh, Arnold Wold showed that it helped, but he, he did it in a very small group of children. Then Vera Looning showed that it helped in a very small group of children. And then finally, we published a paper in 200 children, and it, it was not more successful than conventional therapy. And then for the first time, Vera also showed that it was not helpful. Uh, and, it was not, and then we looked at the uh, pelvic floor abnormalities, and it didn't make a difference to those children who were able to contract or relax their sphincter complex. So that was one. Uh, and then, indeed, then there was a physiotherapist in the Netherlands, and she said, okay, pelvic floor physiotherapy is different from biofeedback. Mm -hmm. Until today, I don't know the difference, but she always <laughs> tells me that there is a difference. And then she did this very small study, which I think is not a very good study. Uh, and I, although I was member of the team, as you, I, I don't know if you read the paper, but it's, it's only 40 children. We should have included 150 children, but after four years, we have to stop because nobody was including patients and the money was gone. And then she decided to send it to gastroenterology. I couldn't be oh. believe my ears, but it was published. And I didn't, although, well, we, we, we had these results, but you know, there were so many questions about this, this, this uh, paper. Uh, and then the paper was repeated in the Netherlands as well by a general practitioner. Mm -hmm. uh, who's, and that's nice because they see the patients before we see them in the Netherlands. So right. they are the first line. And then she showed it was not effective. Um, yes, it's, it's a difficult question. There are pros and cons. I've never, nothing against it. The only thing I want to say about it, don't send your child to a physiotherapist 
uh, for biofeedback when they are younger than six years of age because these people they don't know what's going on uh, around their anus they, they tell you something but they have no clue at all mm-hmm. uh, but still in the netherlands they people send these patients to uh, to such as to such a, a physiotherapist and another thing is uh, although they probably don't admit it it's, it's sometimes it's it's an invasive uh, therapy you have to think about it as well if children are really frightened and they have to do things with their anus you know sometimes it it, it doesn't help that well so that's yeah. my difficult answer on a difficult question well do you think that there is a role for pelvic floor biofeedback or physiotherapy for maybe like the the adolescent who has evidence of dysinertia both both maybe on the history and maybe a manometry or difficography? Well, if you listen to uh, Satish Rao, right. it helps. It always helps. Right, right. So, and again, I don't have anything against it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can try, but we don't have studies in adolescence uh, yeah. with, uh, with, with such uh, abnormal behavior because it's more common in the, in the young children. Uh, but again, so if you have tried everything, then why not buy right. feedback? Right. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I think the key... For so many of these is, you know, we just need larger prospective randomized studies to really know, um, especially I think for this topic, like you mentioned, there was that excellent quality data already done. But, you know, with time, I think people have started to maybe not pay attention to it as much. You know, you mentioned the, okay, so you mentioned also, you know, internal anal sphincter Botox injection mm-hmm. and, um, and also how you know, manometry may or may not predict an uh, outcome of that. Um, how do you use it? Like, what's like the clinical scenario that you would use that for? And um, I mean, does the manometry result play any role in whether you decide to do it or not? No, because uh, nowadays, uh, the most children where I use Botox are the very small children. Mm-hmm. So uh, they are most of the time below the, the age of one. Uh, and then they already started with uh, rectal irrigation because nothing helped. So they used oral laxatives in, in, in very high dosages and they, they, they had a combination of laxatives. And then still they don't uh, poo. Yeah. Uh, and then, uh, well, I don't know if you use it as well in the United States, but then we start ir- the, the rectal irrigation even in the very young children. Uh, and then in those cases, when we already ha- have done a, a biopsy and hirsprung disease is, is excluded, then... Then I like to use the Botox, but then again, um, we do the anorectal manometry, but I don't care about the result because I still use it. And then I tell the parents if if the result is gone after after two weeks, then I never do it again. Yeah. Uh, but if it if it continues and and the use of, for instance, irrigation is 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 less, or you don't have to use that much. Uh, that many oral laxatives anymore that's that's the reason to do it because you have to i, I don't know how your experience is but you need general anesthesia mm-hmm. even if the the children are under general anesthesia it's a painful injection i don't know why but I, every time i experience this so you can't do it without uh, general anesthesia so the costs are really high and if you have to do it week after week after week i don't think it's good for the brain yeah. at the at, uh, at last so that's the reason why i say okay if it lasts if the, the effect lasts six weeks, I'm happy to do it again. So I follow s- some of these children, but again, the weakness is that we never did the prospective trial. We, so we have to set it up uh, because uh, then I know how, how many times I do it. If the, if you do a manometry after six weeks, it do- doesn't show a difference or whatever. I, I don't know. Right. So that's I, I think it's difficult. We don't know what we really are doing. 
I was kind of, uh, you were talking about rectal irrigations, and I was thinking about um, how do patients feel about rectal irrigations? Yeah, I, I love the question. I love the question. Um, so, you know, I think there is a, a cultural difference between countries. Uh, and, um, you know, when I give these talks about constipation, people are surprised that I'm doing all these kind of things. And if you ask them, have you ever seen such a patient? Then most of them say, they, they tell me, no, I've never seen such a patient. And I can't believe this because I see so many of these children who doesn't, who don't respond, don't respond on anything. High dosage of polyethylene glycol combined with, uh, bisocodyl with, uh, combined with another lexalip and then still they don't defecate at all and have fecal incontinence all day. And it can't be true that this is only in the Netherlands. And we have uh, 17 million people here. Uh, with uh, 150,000 children born every year, it can't be different than Belgium or Italy or whatever. But again, you know, if I tell these stories, people are surprised that I'm telling them. So in these cases where um, these oral lectures don't work and the children have fecal incontinence, uh, which in, in my opinion is very, uh, very bad for their social activities, being at school, smelling, being bullied, all these kind of things, so then in those cases, I start uh, rectal irrigation. And again, and I don't know if it's a surprise for, for those people who listen to this podcast, um, but 90% of the patients and parents are very satisfied with the system. I have no shares in one of these, in, in all these companies. So I, I don't have to say that it works. It's my own experience. They say we have another child. It's more happy. It's more open. We don't have to. He or she doesn't have to fear for fecal uh, um, accidents anymore. So it, I, I have a very good experience with, with these children. And I, in, in my current practice, I think I have more than 100 children with functional constipation on colonic irrigation. And most of these children, you can taper the frequency. And, and many of these cases after, I, I don't care about how many, how, how many months or years, they can discontinue the, uh, the, the, the rectal irrigation. You don't get a lazy bowel. Uh, and uh, again, people are very happy with it. But I don't know how you think about it, but it might be a cultural difference. Do you have them do rectal irrigations nightly or daily, or is it weekly? How frequent and for how long? So uh, that's, I can't answer the question because, again, we don't have prospective trials. So what you hear is from... Dr. Benninga from nobody else. So there's no uh, science behind it. It's my filthy mind. Um, <laughs> so what I do, I start with um, colonic irrigation. In, so in the severely constipated children with fecal incontinence, this is the, the, the group of children I treat colonic ir or anal, transanal ir irrigation. Uh, so I start daily for a month. Then after uh, most of the time, after two weeks, I call these parents to ask them, uh, are you happy with it? Is the, is the child okay? Is the child okay with it? Is it painful? Et cetera, et cetera. And then uh, I, I again ask them how everything works. And if everybody is fine with it, then I call them two weeks later. And then the child should be good. And with what I mean with good is the, 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 he or she should have daily defecation without any fecal incontinence. And then after one month, I start to taper one time per week. And again, I, I'm not in a hurry because these children, you know, when I face them, 
most of them have constipation for five years or more. So you you don't come if you if you come into my outpatient clinic, you don't face a magician or a king or whatever. Um, so it needs time, uh, and I explain it to them, and I don't care. Uh, so it's daily, uh, and they can pick the time of the day themselves. It can be in the morning, in the afternoon. What's not what's good for them? Because as you know, some families are very busy during the the morning. Uh, dressing all the children b- before they go to school so they don't have the time to sit on the toilet. It's whatever they want, but you need to do it every time on the same day. That's very interesting to me. Very interesting to me because, um, and we have a North American expert here, Peter. Uh, I, uh, the cultures here are a little different, right, Peter? Uh, people are more resistant to doing rectal irrigation and even kind of, they're more willing to do surgeries like a, uh, a Milan or cecostomy and do anti-grade uh, enemas versus retrograde enemas. It'd be very interesting to hear kind of both of your inputs on the patient population well, difference and acceptance. Well, I, I, the population is exactly the same, mm-hmm. but uh, the, the one is born in the United States and one is born <laughs> in, the, in the Netherlands. I don't know who's who is the lucky one, um, but um, I think you bring up another very important topic because our surgeon will never do a surgical intervention without knowing if the child can be uh, irrigated properly. So if the, the rectal anal uh, uh, irrigation is not working, then to my opinion, the, the Malone will never work. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so what uh, we do the Malone when um, the the rectal irrigation is is fine but the child or the family is totally fed up with doing this. And then we suggest them to use them alone, but not the other way around. Yeah. I mean, I, I would say that, you know, we have been, it's definitely a cultural difference, you know, like we will talk about and offer rectal enemas, daily enemas, peristine irrigations. Um, but it's so common that the family will say, Oh, I feel like we're traumatizing the child or the child. It's a traumatic experience. We have to hold them down, things like that. And I'm sure, obviously, medically, they're the same patient, but something about the culture has taught them that this is not appropriate, you know, whether it's media or the way the parent, you know, treats this treatment. Um, so, cause you know, it's not that we don't offer rectal enemas or irrigations, I, th- I think it's it's a fascinating well, and, difference. And, and, and another observation mm-hmm. is, and I don't know if it's true because nobody looked at it, but my, again, my own experience is that uh, children toler- tolerate much better uh, the rectal irrigation than the enemas because it's less painful. Mm-hmm. But again, that's that's my own experience. I don't know if it's true or, uh, and again, there are, there's no study w- which really evaluated that, but we use uh, warm water. Mm-hmm. Which is probably a nicer feeling than the, than the enema. Although I always suggest if you use an enema, put them in bo- warm water because it's it's better for the child as well. Uh, but it's le- to my experience and what the children tell me, it's less painful. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think at least our institution's practice has been to you know at least recommend or try rectal treatment first before moving on to an antegrade. I, I think as you know, as you know, Peter, and you, you know. You probably have much better surgeons than we have, of course. Uh, but the complication rate is high. Yeah. Every surgical intervention in these children. Uh, and we just uh, we, we published together with Carlo mm-hmm. um, uh, our surgical I- intervention results. And they are really poor with 90%, again, 90 
of the children have complication of, of for instance, an ostomy. Uh, and the same is true with them alone. So I, I tell the parents, and, and most of these people really want to kill me because they say, okay, now you have to do something about this problem. You don't live in our house and you don't know how the, how the feeling is. And I truly, I, I do know because I visit, when I was young, I visited all these houses with all these children because I, I needed data for my, for my follow-up study. So mm -hmm. I really know what I'm talking about. But then, um, well, they, sometimes they persuade you to do things you don't want to do. And now we have a big team because in the, in the, in the old days, I decided it myself together with the surgeon. But now we have a psychiatrist in our team and a psychologist and, uh, and another, uh, and a dietitian and a physiotherapist and a general pediatrician. So with, I think, 10 people, we decide what to do. We call the general practitioner. We call, we call school what family these people are, what, what kind of families they are and how they influence their, their child before we take the decision really to do a surgical intervention. And you know, I, I know Carlo very well and he always tell me, okay, how can you treat children for 10 years and doing nothing and leave them <laughs> alone? And we don't, but it's very difficult to take a decision um, where you upfront don't know what the result will be. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> That's very interesting. Can you tell me a little bit more about how you recommend parents do the irrigation? So you mentioned warm water. Uh, how much do you uh, tell them to kind of irrigate with? You know, there's a very nice paper uh, we wrote together with a group of people. And uh, there's one doctor from the United States uh, doing her practice in Florida. Uh, and in this paper, we tell all the, the tricks how you do colonic irrigation. So it's, it's, it's based on, uh, on, on weight. Uh, and then you use a certain amount of, of milliliters. And then, uh, we discuss how many times a week, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. We'll put in a link for that paper in our yeah. show notes. Yeah. And just to throw out there, I mean, so obviously the practice is very different. We definitely use way more anti-grade condensed enemas with Malone Pentecostomies or Tocostomies. You know, I feel like, yes, you know, I think minor complications are not uncommon, but major complications are pretty rare. Um, yeah, I, I agree. But what, what a minor complication right. for the doctor is, is can be a major complication for the parents. Sure. Like, sure. like, like pain, uh, like, uh, uh, fecal loss, uh, whatever. Mm -hmm. We don't think we could, we don't consider it as a, as a very huge, huge thing. But you, you know, it, it smells, uh, the, yeah. the child is, is, well, I don't have to explain it to you. You know, one thing that we have been, you know, one way, I guess, and that we've been using to try to predict a response is, uh, their response to a stimulant during a colonic manometry. You know, thinking that like we're delivering something that the flush would, you know, this would be where the flush goes and we're seeing their, you know, clinical response and whether they have stool output. Yeah. Um, so, so, what, so in, in contrast, what we do is, it, again, if you do the, the rectal irrigation and it, it, it's, it's successful, then you're right. pretty sure that the, uh, the, the Malone will work as well. Yeah. So, and then yeah, we, we don't agree. need a, a colonic manometry. Yeah. 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 And, and another, another trick, what you can do is do a, uh, lavage. Mm -hmm. So you put in a nasogastric tube and you do a lavage, for instance, with uh, high dosages of polyethylene glycol. And, and if you see that it, it goes, uh, it, it, it will go from the mouth to the anus very easily. Then again, it's, it's a reason to, uh, to use them alone. Yeah. You know, one other thing to ask about, we talked about, you know, the role of a little bit kind of the role of surgery in treating constipation. The other thing that we haven't talked too much about 
is a segmental colonic resection or even total colonic resection. And I think even for us, like our perspective on that has changed over the past several years. But how do you view that? Is that even an option? Um, what do you think? I, I think, again, people who are listening to this, to this podcast must think, well, this Peter is asking <laughs> such terrible questions to this poor guy in the Netherlands because, you know, um, we have to, we, we have to really have to, to say that it's only a very, very, very uh, small minority of all these patients. I think it's less than uh, half a percent, uh, percent of, of all the patients I see. So it's the end of the end of the end. Right. And then uh, I already told you that we have a big team who decides and then decision what we, ha- what, what to do is very difficult and based on hardly anything mm. to my opinion. So that's that what we do know now is that uh, in the last 10 years or so, we did uh, in many children an ileostomy. Mm-hmm. But the, the 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 complication rate is so high. I don't think we will continue doing this because there are so many problems with the with the stomas that you know uh, children are on and off in the hospital. You have to redo the, the the stoma. So I think it will change in the next years. The easy children for me are the boys, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen years old, who have um, neglected their 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 urge to defecate or whatever reason they. They didn't go to the bathroom. They have a mega rectum, um, and uh, the rest of the colon is fine. And in those children, I'm a real in favor of taking the the, the rectum out and 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 perform an, an, an anastomosis. And and in these boys, we are really successful. It's so it's based on the anatomical problem. But if you have, for instance, a slow transit constipation, it's so dangerous. What you do, I, you know, we 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 don't know. We again, we have to put our hands together with many teams who, who, who dare to use a surgery in these patients and then again do a prospective trial because nowadays, you know, it's a gamble because I, you know, uh, I don't know if you agree with me, but even colonic manometry is not a good prediction what will happen to all these terrible children. For colonic resection, for sure, you know, we also have been moving a little bit away from that and only using it you know, in very, very selected situations. Because I think even if a colonic manometry shows a limited amount of distal uh, colonic dysmotility, there's still the possibility that they may respond to rectal or antegrade enemas, that that segment may improve with time. Um, mm-hmm. So we, we've been really trying to try to save as yeah. much colon as possible. But again, we, we face the problem that I don't know how it is in the United States, but in Holland, for sure, it, it's true. That people become more and more impatient. They yeah. want their child to be uh, yeah. recovered uh, yesterday. Right. And, and you know, if, even if they have ten years of constipation, then again, nobody helped them. The, the problems are very severe. And now there should be uh, you should do something. And you know, that's not the good way to go. But sometimes, well, then you do it without being sure that you do it the the, the, the good way. But you, people are more and more impatient. So that, I think that's difficult in medicine as well. Yeah. So what I'm hearing is that if the patient is res- not responding to conventional therapy, then irrigations is kind of your way to go. And then if they're n- if you think that they might benefit from Botox, that's when you do the anal rectal manometry. And the last, last resort is surgery. Yeah. Uh, if you exhausted everything, is that correct? Well, yeah, yeah, for sure. But I, I think 
from my perspective, I, I should be really straightforward. I think uh, people from the United States should go for the rectal irrigation more often than they do now because it's 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 safe. Yeah, there are no complications. Uh, again, it's it's very helpful in many children. You can taper, you can discontinue after a, a while, and you, you haven't done anything wrong to the patient. And then after this period, then um, if it doesn't work, of course, or, or it's socially unacceptable for, for some case, then then please go further with all the difficult and, and terrible things we do <laughs> to children. Yeah, I mean, I would say, obviously, there's huge differences in how we practice, but I... I would I would agree with you. I, I think that's something that's that, nice. That's nice. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just feel like a lot of it's also you know yes we blame the culture, but a lot of it's also our own biases, you know. And a sure. lot of our treatments are you know the patient's acceptance is based on how we present it and how easy we make it for them. So uh, I think that's, that's something that us as a group yeah. we've been working on. But uh, the, the, the same is true <clears> when you. That's why I think placebo controlled trials are difficult in to, to perform in children because uh -huh. not only the parents have difficulties that their child is uh, treating uh, is treated as a rabbit. Although I always <laughs> explain your child doesn't look like a rabbit, um, <laughs> but we as doctors always uh, also have our preference. So we yeah, don't like right. to, to, to get our children into these trials because we think, oh, it works or it doesn't work. So our own perception is sometimes uh, important and, uh, well, we shouldn't be more open-minded in, in, in looking if, if it could be. Because if I look at, at my past as a, as, as a doctor, you know, the most successful I ever did was hypnotherapy and mm. I didn't believe mm -hmm. at all in hypnotherapy. <sighs> And look what happened. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a good point. I mean, it's also interesting. So you said rabbits. I think in the United States, it's always a guinea pig. Oh, it's a For some pig. reason. Okay. I don't know why. Okay. It's, not, it's not even a mouse. <laughs> okay. But, okay. Uh, you know, one, that's yeah, yeah, one I, difference. I yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> that's another key difference we got to highlight. <laughs> But you know, I, I know because like they don't look they, they don't look they don't look similar, don't they? Do they? They're both know. small. And like I don't know anyone doing research on guinea pigs. You know, everyone's doing research on mice. But yeah. anyways, okay. one last thing I want to add on to. So you mentioned briefly sacral nerve stimulation. You know, oh, yeah. as that's a kind of a personal interest of mine, but in reality we don't use it very much here. What are your thoughts about that? What do you think well, is, is its it, role? It's it's I think it's a very sad story. Mm -hmm. uh, so I used sacral nerve stimulation, I think, 10 years uh, ago mm -hmm. in those children where oral and rectal laxatives uh, didn't help. Uh, and then, uh, of course, we thought about uh, surgery, but then uh, I, I wrote these papers uh, of adults treating by, by this uh, new, new therapy. So uh, in that, at that time, we sent those patients to Maastricht, this mm -hmm. is in the south of mm -hmm. Holland. Uh, and well, it was unbelievable because I, in our first trial, I think 70%, 7-0, uh, became uh, much better uh, after using uh, the sacral nerve stimulation. And then in the Netherlands, after uh, a certain period, uh, there was no uh, insurance anymore for this particular oh, therapy. Wow. So they told us, okay, you can continue to, uh, to use sacral nerve stimulation. Uh, but you have to do a prospective trial. So that's mm -hmm. why we started a trial with Maastricht and Gouda, which is another city you you might know because yes. Gouda cheese. The cheese. Gouda Howda. cheese, but it's but but it's spelled <laughs> it's it's pronounced Gouda <laughs> in Dutch. And there was uh, there was another surgeon who was um, very keen in doing sacral nerve stimulation. So we did this study, uh, and before uh, the study finished, 
Medtronics, which is the yeah. company who makes the sacral nerve stimulation, told us they wouldn't go further after the, the study uh, had finished. They won't get a um, certain paperwork to get it uh, on the market wow. uh, for constipation before the, huh. the, 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 the result was there. And it's, it's really sad because it's a, the, the study is in 50% of all these patients, it was really successful. Mm. So these people couldn't have a outlet obstruction. They had slow transit constipation and they had a, a the, they had a test phase which was successful as well. And all these people, uh, of all these people, very severely constipated uh, children and adults, 50% was treated successful. Wow. So nowadays, we can't use sacral nerve stimulation anymore in the Netherlands because mm. there is nothing left. And even those patients who have sacral nerve stimulation, but for instance, the battery oh, uh, doesn't work yeah, anymore, right, they right. can't get a new one. Oh, that's horrible. And it's, it's a terrible situation now. So I send them to Belgium, but I don't know for how long it's possible to send people to Belgium for the same therapy or for a new yeah. battery. Uh, so I was thinking, <coughs> can I send them to the United States? I don't know if, if, they, if they will continue using it. But in our hands, it was really successful in the right patient population. But still, this, uh, this company uh, doesn't feel obliged to continue making these uh, devices for constipation. Wow. It's, I mean, we've had some uh, patients who really responded well, some who did not. But, you know, of course, like you mentioned, these are our most refractory patients that we're trying it in. And no, so, but again, we did, we did transit studies. So mm-hmm. if they have prolonged stand, transit studies, then they could go to the next step, which was the focography, if they were able to, uh, to, to do this, to expel the, the material uh, successfully. Then they would go to the test phase and after three weeks, if nothing happened, they couldn't include yeah. uh, into the study. And then if they were, then they were able to get into the study. And then in this population, the most severe cases, right. 50%, which is a, a huge yeah. number. Yeah, that's... And really worthwhile <clears throat> trying. Yeah. Well, I, I can say nasty things I, will, I won't <laughs> do because it's a podcast. All right, we'll have a conversation offline about how we're going to, how we're going to, we're going to put some pressure on these, on these people. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, make it work. <laughs> yeah. uh, unfortunately, we're coming to our end of our podcast. We have a couple more questions for you, if you don't mind. So looking back at your career, um, what has been the most valuable advice that you've received and what advice do you give to our listeners? That's uh, a, a difficult question. Well, the, the, the best is, advice yeah. is, is, is a general answer. Uh, do do everything in life you really like to do, and, and I would suggest it to to the listeners as well. If you do things you don't like, then life is not so nice. Uh, and if you're getting older, it's becoming more and more true. Uh, so please do whatever you like. Then life is nice. Oh, perfect. Yeah. Do what makes you happy. I like yeah. that advice. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So once again, you know, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to join us on the podcast and. It was so nice to talk to someone that I haven't seen in a long time. And I'll see you soon in uh, San Diego at DDW. Um, Any final words for our listeners before we, uh, before we let you go? No, I I also uh, really want to thank uh, you, Peter and Tamara for listening to this uh, Dutchie. (laughs) Uh, And, and, you know, it's, it's, it's real. Well, I love it to, as you know, to collaborate with you and I hope to do this for, the rest of our careers and uh, to, to stay really, really good friends because that's the best thing of life, better than which article yeah. I ever produced. Yeah. 
It'd be yeah. an honor for us to be your friends. I mean, honor <laughs> for me. <laughs> yes, in San Diego. We'll, we'll have a drink yes. at least. Yeah. So, all right. Okay. Thanks again. Thank you so much for joining us. Take Thank care. You. Guys. Take care. Bye. All right. That was such a good episode. I wish we could. I mean, we could have continued for a long, long time. And still, I'm like still shocked by how differently we practice. It's crazy. Especially the rectal irrigations. Yeah. That is so much. That's so interesting. But even like the use of manometry, like anatomy, we find super helpful. Like I didn't want to like argue too much, but no, I think there are huge benefits to using anatomy and colonic manometry. So yeah, you know, it's interesting. So if you don't already, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at at Sounds and on Facebook at at Pediatric GI Podcast for the latest news and updates and upcoming episodes. And if you like what you heard and you want to support the podcast, it would really help us if you did one or all the one or all of the following three things. One, tell one person, two persons or three persons about the podcast. Everybody you know. Two, yep. <laughs> or everybody. Two, leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help others discover our podcast. And three, on our Buzzsprout page, there's a link to support the show by making a donation to the NASPGAN Foundation. You can also get there through www.naspgan.org. The money you donate helps support some of the amazing things that the NASPGAN Foundation is doing, including supporting pediatric GI research and public education programs. And as always, the discussion, views, and recommendations podcast with sole responsibility of the host and guests are subject to change with Hanson's field. Thank you. Find you next time. Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>